Okay, so I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 8, starting at verse 22. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands and the big toes of their right feet. Then he splashed blood against the sides of the altar. (coughs) Sorry. After that, he took the fat, the fat tail and all the fat around the internal organs the long lobe of the liver, both kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. And from the basket of bread made without yeast, which was before the Lord, he took one thick loaf, one thick loaf with olive mixed in and one thin loaf. And he put these on the fat portions and on the right thigh. He put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and they waved them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar on top of the burnt offerings as an ordination offering, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Moses also took the uh, the breast, which was his share of the ordination ram, and waved it before the Lord as a wave offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now chapter 21, so you might want to flick over a few pages. starting at verse 5. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or cut their bodies. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their God because they present the food offerings to the Lord, the food of their God. They are to be holy. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy, because I, the Lord, am holy, I who makes you holy. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned in the fire. The high priest, the one among his brothers who has, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it, because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from among his own people so that he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. Let me pray as Rowan comes to the front to speak. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your spirit-inspired word. We thank you for the way that it teaches us and guides us and contains everything we need for every good work. And so I pray now for Rowan as he speaks that you will be using him to teach us and to grow us as children of yours. Amen.
I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp. I uh, have the privilege of leading the EU staff team here at Sydney University. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. And the EU, in its, uh, some would say, questionable wisdom, asked me to spend the first four weeks here at the EU public meetings talking through a bizarre, controversial and much unexplored book of the Bible, this book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. What we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is starting to sort of orientate ourselves to understand this ancient uh, text, which is found in the Christian and start to think about how, how, how do we understand this as a Christian text in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we read it pointing towards Jesus Christ as prophecy? How do we read it through Jesus Christ as God's word even to us today who no longer live under the old Jewish covenant? Those are some of the big questions we've been asking. Today I'm asking the question or making the comment really about God being on your side. That's sort of a bit of a theme I'm working with today. In particular, it annoys me no end, just if I can share some of my personal baggage with you, uh, annoys me no end when people always claim that God is on their side. Like, I'll just... For what it's worth, right, I reckon the one true living God, the one God who sort of created all the heavens and the earth, the only God who's truly God, I do not believe that this God is a rabbit-o's supporter. <laughs> I do not believe that this God is, you know, watching Sydney FC games with a particular hopeful interest. I do not believe that this one true living God actually wants to be a wallaby, even if rugby is the game played in his heaven. Nor do I believe that the one true living God is particularly on the side of Australia or New Zealand. That's, and everyone would laugh at that normally, I guess. <laughs> Nor do I believe that the one true living God is particularly on the side of America in all of America's dealings. I don't believe that the one true living God is on, particularly on the side of any one particular nation. Why do I say that? Well, it's because Jesus was very clear. Jesus, when asked by Pontius Pilate, said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom cannot be identified with any particular nation. It cannot be identified with any particular sporting team. Jesus' kingdom cuts across all of those human boundaries. The irony of it all, when people go around claiming that God is somehow on their side, the irony of it all is that God is more profoundly on your side than maybe you realise. God actually is on your side in quite profound ways and that's what the book of Leviticus is going to highlight to us today as we understand it in the light of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to explore today. Now, the particular thing I want to explore today is a bit of a, a theme throughout the book of Leviticus, the idea to do with the priesthood, Old Testament Jewish priesthood. It comes up quite a bit in the book of Leviticus. That's what we're going to explore. However, before we launch into that, I need to give you a little bit of a heads up on how to understand the structure of the book of Leviticus. Now, I don't know if you've been inspired by the fact that we here in the EU are trying to sort of look at the book of Leviticus going, I'm going to read it. Has anyone decided to head out and read Leviticus as a result of... Come on, has anyone? A few! That's really great! You should all do this, right? Do yourself a favour and read the book of Leviticus while we're here at EU Public Meeting sort of reading through it. You should. However, if you do this, you get through the first couple of chapters and then you go, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, this is... I'm, 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 I feel like I'm moving through treacle. Like, I, how do I... 
Okay, so here's my, here's my bit of a tip for you. Here's my reading advice for how to read the book of Leviticus. Here is how I think it all fits together. So hopefully it makes some sense for you. Now you might remember that I said last week there is a particular question to which Leviticus is God's answer. The question was, how can the holy God live amongst an unholy people? We know from the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, this is God's intention, his plan, his purpose, to live amongst his people. But the problem is, his people are unholy. How can the holy God live amongst an unholy people? And the book of Leviticus, I said to you, is is the answer to that. And what, in summary, is the answer? The answer is, God makes them holy so he can come amongst them. And that's what we looked at last week, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 26, all about how God makes his people holy, right? I'm going to suggest to you that actually the way the book of Leviticus fits together is that the Day of Atonement is right in the very centre. Because this is the the central point where once a year God took his people through this ritual to make them holy. Now, if you read the book of Leviticus, either side of that Day of Atonement are passages that have a common theme before and after. In particular, chapters 11 through 15 are about all these laws for God's people about clean and unclean things. We're going to come back later in the year and look at this in detail, okay? Clean and unclean, how they can stay holy. After the Day of Atonement, chapters 17 to 20, there are more laws for God's people about staying holy. So both before and after you have these these laws, these rules about how to be God's holy people, a common theme. Now if you step out further before and after again, you'll see again a common theme. This time, they are passages all about priesthood. Chapters 8 through 10 are all about the establishment of this priesthood and chapters 21 through halfway through 22 are all about laws for this priesthood and how to stay holy. Now, we just had a reading, two readings, one from chapter 8, one from chapter 21, right? Both on this priesthood idea, okay? Common theme about the holy priesthood. Step out again, one level more, and you'll see again, I think, common themes. This time it's about holy practices. Chapters 1 through 7, all about various gifts and sacrifices to help the people be holy. And then in chapter, halfway through chapter 22, through the end of chapter 25, all about festivals and Sabbath days. More holy practices. Okay, so I think you have this in and out sort of pattern. There's holy practices at the outer end, Move in a level, holy priesthood, move in a level, holy people, then right at the centre, the Day of Atonement, where the Lord makes his people holy. And then, if you know the book of Leviticus, maybe you never got through to chapter 26 and 27, but there are some, what I've called just final words, which really do wrap up the whole of the book in chapter 26 and 27. Okay, now, you can see this structure, right? It's clear to you now how it goes. It goes in and out with that centre point. Technical word for it, called a chiasm. C-H-I-A something or other, right? Whatever you spell, I'm a useless speller. Chiasm just means sort of in and out, basically. Hand up if you're a humanities person, you write essays for a living here at uni. Great, okay. Normally when we write essays, we go, here's my intro, here's my point one, my point two, point point three, point three, here's my conclusion, very good. Try writing an essay like this, as a chiasm. And you're sort of going, how would I do that? Exactly, right? The point is... This is not 
the way we are used to structuring literature. But in the ancient world, this was actually quite a common way of structuring literature. This is not a weird thing, it's just not something that we tend to do in our sort of post-enlightenment, linear, modernist sort of hangover, whatever. Okay, right? <laughs> That's this, this, I think, now... You can disagree with me about how the book is structured. That's perfectly fine. Let's argue about the text. That's great. You know, are the great body of scholars out there on my side agreeing with this, how the book is structured? No. Um, how did I come up with this? I read the book a lot of times. Notice there were common themes. Notice they came back to certain things. I can go through it in more detail with you. And I said, this seems, to be, this seems to be how it works. And I thought, well, I won't impose it on you just, you know, because I dreamt it up. So I thought I'd better go and read what the great, you know, biblical scholars say, and I went to a library and started looking up all the, and I found one comment in one footnote of one particular dude who wrote one article back in the 1980s who came up with something similar as me. I thought, that's good enough, let's go with that. <laughs> he agrees with me, I must be right. Anyway, I think this actually is how it, it's structured. It makes sense, I think, of the whole book, and actually I think it will help you as you read it. Right? Okay, so that's a bit of how the book is structured. Now, what we're talking about today is the priesthood, the holy priesthood, which has a key, key part in answering the big question of, remember what's the motivating question for the book? How can a holy God live amongst an unholy people? Leviticus is the answer. God makes his people holy. The priesthood part to play in that, but what exactly do the priests do? What exactly do the priests do? That's what we want to explore, okay? Two headings for you. First thing to note then is, what we learn from the book of Leviticus is that the Lord is the one, the one true living God, is the one who establishes this priesthood. The priesthood was not, this Israelite priesthood, was not a human invention. It wasn't like we said, hmm, I wonder how we can get right with God. Let's uh, designate some people as priests and they can sort of... No, this was not a human invention. This was something that the one true living God established in order to help make the people holy. Okay? It's the Lord's establishment. Now... Chapters 8 through to 10 of Leviticus are all about how the priesthood gets established. However, Leviticus is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are what's called the Pentateuch or Torah, the Old Testament law. Whilst each of those books has a little bit of its own character and so it exists on it in its own right. The five books do form a unity together. And so when we're jumping in and reading Leviticus, we do need to read it in the light of what's come before in particular. And at this particular point, the establishment of the priesthood, it actually goes back to the book of Exodus. So if you've got your Bible there, flick with me back or call it up on your phone, share it with the person next to you, Flick back to Exodus chapter 28, very briefly. Exodus 28. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Exodus 28, 1 and 2. The Lord here, the one true living God, is speaking to Moses. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from amongst the, the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Ibihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honour. And then you can read on, and if you just sort of look at the headings maybe, the next couple of chapters, next 28, 29, you can see there's lots of regulations about the different clothing that Aaron and then his sons are to wear. 
Okay? And then in chapter 29, details about how they are to be consecrated, set apart for this work of priests. Okay? All the details, those are all the Lord's instructions on what to do. Now, if you flick through to Exodus chapter 40, right at the end of the little book of Exodus, Exodus 40 verses 12 to 16, there's a bit of a statement there that you can read where basically we're told, and Moses went and did everything that God had said about setting up the priesthood. Okay, it's a little summary statement. Moses went and did everything that he was told to do back in chapters 28 and 29. When you get through to Leviticus 8 and 9, you get the detailed account of how Moses fulfilled all the commands back in 28, 29. Okay? So it's all the details of the setup, Exodus 28, 29. Summary, Moses did it all, Exodus 40. The detailed account of him doing it all, Leviticus 8 and 9. So if you go and read Leviticus 8 and 9, and maybe we'll just read the first couple of verses, Leviticus 8. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. And then he goes through and fulfills all the commands from Exodus 28 and 29. Okay? You've got the detailed. Uh, completion of everything that the Lord said to do back in Exodus. Okay? Just making the point, you need to read Leviticus in the light of what is set up in Exodus, and it's the Lord who establishes this priesthood, and that's what Leviticus 8 and 9 are about, him setting it up as God had said. Oh well, okay, but what was the priesthood actually meant to do? What were they actually achieving? What was their task, their role? Okay, well, the summary statement is the priesthood was set up as an intermediary between God and his people. This is what the priesthood was to do. Now, using the word intermediary, uh, maybe in days past I would have said mediator. The priesthood was to be a mediator between God and his people. The problem is today when we think of mediator, we tend to think uh, legal dispute resolution, you know, to these days to sort of uh, keep more trials out of court. They actually set up a mediation process and you go to the mediator and he tries to resolve the dispute so it doesn't have to go to court. The thing about that is when we think about mediators there, that mediator has a fair bit of authority. In some ways it's not just mediator standing between two people, the mediator in a way stands above the two parties, right? That's not what an intermediary does. An intermediary stands in the middle and that's what the priesthood does. The priesthood, established by God himself, stands in the middle between God and his unholy people. They exist as a buffer zone, a buffer zone between God, the living holy God, and his unholy people who he wants to live amongst. The way that it's talked about though, in the Pentateuch, in the sort of the first five books of the Bible, is that there is a whole system of graded holiness. That's why the priesthood exists as a bit of a buffer between the holy God and the unholy people. He sets apart this holy priesthood to act as a buffer zone. There's this graded system of holiness which is linked to proximity, how close you get to the one true living God. Now, I've been very good so far. I mean, this is, what, our second EU Thursday public meeting and I have been very restrained. If you're an old-time EUer, that is second year or above, you know I have not yet picked up the chalk once this year and drawn on the board but I can restrain myself no longer, hence to the board we go. Now, 
you've got to have in your head a bit of a picture of what exactly was going on with this tent of meeting, this tabernacle and the priesthood and the camp. Okay, so let me draw you a picture. Here we go. Now, here is the actual tent of meeting. <laughs> Here's the tent of meeting, right? This bit in the middle. Okay, it's an actual tent. You can't sort of, you can see into sort of maybe the bit of the entrance, but you can't see all the way in. It's actually got two parts. It's got one part that's called the holy place and it's got an inner sanctum, an inner court, which is called the most holy place. It's called the most holy place because it's more holy than the holy place. Okay, it's the most holy place. Right, you're with me? Okay. That's the tent of meeting. Around the tent of meeting was a courtyard which had like a mobile fence. This whole structure was a mobile thing, right? The Israelites are carrying it with them in the desert. It's not built out of bricks and mortar. It's built out of ropes, material and poles. They carry this thing around with them. This is the tent in the middle of the tent of meeting. This sort of outer fence had an entrance part that you could walk into and this, the whole sort of courtyard was called the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay? The entrance to the t- this whole section. And here was the altar and there was a thing for washing and all that. There's some stuff set up here, right? Now, around this, this tent of meeting and the entrance to the tent of meeting all was within the Israelite camp, right? Where they put all their tents because they're wandering around the desert. And then... Outside the camp, you had outside the camp. (laughs) Just so you understand. Now, where is the living God, the one true living God, symbolically dwelling? He wants to dwell amongst his people. He wants to dwell in the camp. Symbolically, the one true living God takes up residence in the most holy place. In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant covered in gold, had the Ten Commandments inside it, had the rod that budded. And once a year, as we read last week in the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest and the high priest alone would come into the most holy place, the presence, the symbolic presence of the one true living God, who dwelt, not in the box, who dwelt above the box, above the sort of the cherubim, the raised above, like it was sort of carved above the box. He was above that. And so much so that when the high priest would enter, he would have to burn stuff that would make smoke so that he wouldn't see the Lord, else he would die. Okay? So once a year, the high priest and the high priest alone, who can go in here? The high priest. Once a year. Well, who else gets to go into the presence of God? No one. Who goes into the holy place, the next sort of graded level of holiness out? Well, who goes in there is the priest's. The priests go into the holy place regularly to carry out their priestly work. But if, can a regular Israelite go in there? No. They are not holy enough. They are not priests. Only priests into the holy place. Who enters into, comes to the entrance to the tent of meeting? Well, it's clean Israelites. Now, we're going to talk about clean and unclean in a few weeks when we come back to the book of Leviticus, sometime later in the semester. So, we'll, I'll wait for them to have the discussion. Clean Israelites can come into the entrance to the tent of meeting. Who can come into the camp? Well, you had to be a member of the people of Israel or had decided to live amongst the people of Israel. And 
Well, who's outside the camp? Well, guess what? Me. And you. Anyone who is not a Jew, if you're not a Jew. Anyone who's not a Jew outside the camp, buddy. You, you cannot get even as close as living in the camp. And you cannot certainly get into the entrance of the enemy. You certainly can never get into the holy place because you're not a priest and you are not a son of Aaron and you are not walking into the most holy place because you are not the high priest. How close do you get to the presence of the living God? A long way out. And the graded system actually worked even within the camp. Who got to set up their tent closest to the tent of meeting? Answer, the... The Israelites who were from the tribe of Levite. The Levites got to be... Why? Because they were the roadies for the tent of meeting. <laughs> these guys were the guys... If you read Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 1, these were the guys who were responsible for setting up and setting down. They bumped in, bumped out with this tent of meeting. Right? And they carried it around with them. They were responsible for looking after... And so the Levites had been set apart by God to do this function so they got to live closest. Okay, so it's a system of graded holiness and proximity. Make sense? That's how it worked. So God comes to dwell amongst his people, but not everyone gets to go in. Does that make sense? Great. Okay. What else can we say about this priesthood? They function as intermediaries, right, in this system of graded holiness. Secondly, part of their task was to represent the people. You can see this in the clothing that Aaron, the high priest, wore. Now, if you're there still in Leviticus chapter 8, you can see verses 7 to 9. Moses put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, put on the ephod on him. He also tied the ephod to him by its skillfully woven waistband, so it was fastened to him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred diadem, on the front of it as the Lord commanded Moses. This is one of those places where you read and go, yeah, I don't know, what, what, big deal. Right, well, hang on. Where, where were these commands given that I'm reading in Leviticus 8 and 9? Where were the commands given? Exodus 26-27, yeah? That's where all the commands were given in Exodus, like about this is what you're to do to set up the priesthood. If you go back and read those chapters and read about the ephod, the ephod was sort of this head and shoulder piece, part of you know the high priestly garb, and read about the breastplate. Guess what? Well, when you put the e- when you make the ephod, there's two stones, one on each sh- shoulder. On one side you have the names of six of the tribes of Israel. On the other one you have the other six tribes named. The high priest wears these stones as he goes into the most holy place. On his breastplate, you'll read in Exodus, 12 12 precious stones, the name of a tribe of Israel on each one. As he goes into the presence of the most holy place, who is he carrying with him? He's carrying all the Israelites with him. He's representing all the people as he goes into the most holy place. That's part of his task. And how did he... What else did he do there? You can see that in, from Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7, what, they're to, what he is to do is to present or make the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So Leviticus 9, verse 7 there, Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Right? Part of the priest's job as an intermediary 
was to represent the people and make the appropriate sacrifices before God. Okay? Third thing we can say, now, an intermediary is in the middle, right? And I was going to say originally, the priest's job was to represent the people in the presence of the Lord and flip it over and to represent God to the people. But I'm not quite sure that's exactly right. So I've just sort of stuck to sort of the way I think it's, it's talked about in Leviticus. The way the priesthood is talked about is they do have this other direction function and it's to help the people be holy. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 10, still in these set-up passages, Leviticus 10 verses 10 and 11, you get a good summary of what the priests were to do. They're told there, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Now, just, you know, my crazy chiastic structure... That summarises really well all the commands for the holy people, which are either side of the Day of Atonement. The first set are all about clean and unclean, second set, all these rules and regulations. The priest's job was to teach the people, distinguish clean from unclean, and help the people be holy. That's what the priesthood is meant to do. But there's a bit of a problem, right? This priesthood functions within this system of graded holiness between the holy God and the unholy people, but guess what? The problem is that the priesthood themselves, the priests themselves, are actually unholy. Now, we saw this, um, well, we didn't get to see the first week, but if you listen to the podcast in week one, where we started this sort of journey through Exodus was with the story of Aaron's two sons who are priests, but who got all sort of, you know, creative and offered their crazy worship before the Lord of their own invention and they got destroyed, right? Because they decided to ignore God's regulations, ignore God's commands. They were unholy and it ended terribly. So there was a sort of a poignant sort of illustration of the fact that priests are unholy. But you see it even in the verse we just read from Leviticus 9 verse 7 because Aaron, before he sacrifices for the people, he has to offer a sacrifice for himself and his own family because of his own sin. And it's there in the Day of Atonement stuff as well, which we looked at last week. I focused last week on the two, the two goats that the high priest had to bring to the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, but that were, they weren't the only sacrifices. He also had to bring a bull, Leviticus 16, and the bull was for the sins of his own family and uh, himself, sorry, and his own family. So he always had to make a atonement for his own sin because there was a basic problem here. The priests themselves were not holy. Okay, so pretty much I've now sort of covered as much as I want to cover with the Old Testament priesthood. I've given you sort of a truckload of information. Hopefully that makes sense of, you know, reading about the priesthood in the Old Testament. But so what? Big deal. How do we understand all this detail about this Old Testament priesthood in the light of Jesus Christ? What's the connection between Jesus, God's ultimate revelation of himself and his ultimate thing he's done, and the priesthood? And I've basically got two main things to say. If you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, you got your Bible there? Or flick open and flip across in your phone. Hebrews. If you want to understand about how to think about the old the old covenant priesthood in the light of Jesus, just read Hebrews chapter four, verse fourteen, through to the end of chapter ten. You might say, Well, that's a lot. That's from chapter 4 to chapter 10. 
That is a very cheap education, my friend. Like, you can read that on the bus this afternoon. Chapter 4 through to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews will tell you pretty much everything you need to know about how to understand the Old Testament priesthood in the light of the greater ministry of Jesus. That's what it's pretty much all about, okay? I'm just going to highlight two, three things from those chapters, right, that I think are most helpful for us right now. First is this. The writer to the Hebrews makes very clear there was a big inadequacy in this Old Testament priesthood, a big inadequacy. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 10, let me listen, let's listen to the writer to the Hebrews here. He's describing the setup for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. He says, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room, that's the holy place, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, the most holy place, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. What he's saying is this, this whole system with the priesthood, guess what? What did it actually produce? What was the effect? What was the result? The good outcome? It was that one person got to enter the most holy place and only once a year and only carrying some blood. That's how far it got. And he asked the question, what, how come more people couldn't just enter in? It's, he says, because all of, the, all of the ritual, all the sacrifices and washings, they, they could cleanse you ceremonially, but they couldn't cleanse your heart. They couldn't cleanse your conscience. And without a cleansed conscience... We can't wander into the presence of the living holy God. And that's why only one person was allowed in as God's act of grace. Because not everyone could just walk in because their consciences had not been cleansed. There was an inadequacy in the very system that you can see because only one person got to go in. So what's the solution? This is where he reflects on Jesus' ministry in the next couple of verses. He talks about the superior and unique priesthood of Jesus. Read on in Hebrews 9 from verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You see what he's saying here? He's saying Jesus is the real high priest. All the high priest, the whole priesthood system, they are shadows, who was the real high priest? It was Jesus. That tabernacle where those priests offered their ministry, that's a shadow. Where's the real most holy place? Well, he says it's not part of this creation. 
That is the real most holy place where the Lord Jesus as our high priest entered on our behalf. Later in the chapter he's told, is in heaven. The very presence, not just the symbolic presence, the very presence of the living God. Jesus our high priest, high priest enters into the real most holy place He's the true high priest in the real most holy place offering the true sacrifice that genuinely cleanses your conscience. He walks in there with with some blood, yes, but it's not the blood of goats and bulls. It's his own blood. Jesus enters the presence of the living God with his own blood to cleanse your conscience from whatever troubles it from whatever has kept you out of the presence of God. No matter how terrible, no matter how seemingly trivial, Jesus has gone there as the real high priest into the real presence of God, making real sacrifice to win you real atonement, real cleansing of your conscience. That's what this whole system, this whole ritual was pointing to, that greater reality. So, the writer to the Hebrews, when he reflects on this, he says, so guess what? How should you respond? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and I'll finish with this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he draws three three actions, right? three responses. But I just want to stop there. Notice how, verse 19, if you've been around Christian things, you've, you've heard this verse thousands of times, maybe hundreds of times, but notice what it actually says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Right, back here, who got to enter the earthly most holy place? Only the high priest once a year. Where do you have confidence to go? Not into this most holy place into the real most holy place. It's not that just Jesus goes there on your behalf. Guess what? Because he's gone there, he takes you with him. You have confidence. Do you feel it? Do you feel like you've got confidence? Do you feel like if the one true living God showed up or brings you to himself, that suddenly you're... We have confidence to enter the most holy place because of the blood of Jesus, because we have a great high priest who has gone before us, Jesus Christ. So consequently, he says, draw near, having your conscience cleansed. Persevere in living the holy life, which we're going to talk more about in the weeks to come, and encourage each other to do the same, to draw near and to persevere One day we will see the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, face to face. How about I close in prayer for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great truth that you reveal to us in the scriptures that point us to all that you have done for us magnificently in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to draw near to him, having our consciousness cleansed, to persevere in holiness and to encourage one another as we see the day approaching for your glory. Amen.